You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants here for our Byzantine Lectionary Reflection for the Sunday of St. Mary of Egypt, the fifth Sunday of Great Lent. And we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 45, and Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. And I want to say a particular hello to Father Sean in uh, Los Angeles, in North Hollywood. And uh, thank you for your kind message and email. We appreciate hearing from all of our participants if our, if our gospel reflection is uh, helping you. It's nice to, nice to hear. So hello, Father, and all of those that are participating today. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 45. Father Sebastian, you got your Bible handy? Okay, good. All right. At that time, Jesus took the twelve and began to tell them what would happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and put him to death, and on the third day he will rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Master, we want thee to, to do for us whatever we ask. But he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us that we may sit, one at thy right hand and the other at thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking for. Can you drink of the cup of which I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, We can. And Jesus said to them, Of the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you shall be baptized. But as for sitting at my right hand or at my left, that is not mine to give, but it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard this, they were at first indignant at James and John. But Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers among the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not so for you. On the contrary, whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For the Son of Man also has not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Father Sebastian, as we usually do, let's just start out with the context of this passage in the Gospel of Mark. Sure. This is the period in which Jesus is traveling between Galilee and Jerusalem. So if we look at the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea. So he's heading from Galilee, now down the Jordan River Valley, down toward 
uh, Jericho. And then when he hits Jericho, he's going to go up the hill, the Judean hills up there to Jerusalem. In fact, the it says in verse 46, and they came to Jericho. So this, this story is between him having left Galilee and just before he arrives in Jericho. So this, is, this occurs on that trip as they're heading to Jerusalem. So, of course, he's heading up to Jerusalem now, though. In the Gospel of John, he goes to Jerusalem three times in the Gospel. Um, uh, here, this is his final. This is, this is just before the Passion, is what you're saying, which makes a lot of sense of what he's talking about now in his explanation to, to the apostle about what's going to happen. But, you know, the, the request of James and John, as we oftentimes call them the, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, uh, might seem strange to us you know, master, we want thee to do for us whatever we ask. He says, what do you want me to do? And he says, grant us that we may sit one at your right hand and other the left hand in thy glory. And I, I kind of wonder uh, from maybe many of our participants, what would it have meant to the apostles at that time? Now, these guys, if I'm not mistaken, had just seen Jesus transfigured on Mount Tabor. Now it is making his way. So they've seen a glimpse of his of his glory. What would the, his glory have meant to them? You know, we think. I think we think of you know Jesus, uh, you know, up in the cloudy heavens, and he's up there, and all the angels are with the violins and stuff, and the playing the concerto. And uh, but certainly that's not the image James and John would have had. So they're Jews in the first century. They've been waiting. These are pious Jews of the first century. So they're, they're waiting for the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah, the, the Christ, Greek, Hebrew Messiah, the anointed king of the line of David to return. They had anointed kings from the time of Saul even, but especially from the time of David, all the way up until the time of Zedekiah, about 500 years. They had this Davidic dynasty ruling over Jerusalem. And then when the Babylonians attacked, they removed Zedekiah, the last of, the, of that line. And so for the next 500 years, after the Babylonian exile, they're basically waiting for the kingdom to be restored. And all the prophets said this was going to happen. And it's often described in Davidic or Solomonic kind of imagery. And the, you, you get a sense, especially if you've read the story of the kingdom of David and Solomon, the books of Kings, and then you're reading the prophets through the lens of the books of Kings, you get a sense that basically things are going to be established like it was in the time of Solomon, but even greater. And so Jesus, the one who is the long awaited Messiah, the King, they identified him at Caesarea Philippi and they said, you are the Christ. They're now heading to Jerusalem and, uh, and Jesus has been telling them all on the way, as soon as this trip began, he's been telling them, guys, this is not going to go the way you think. We remember, of course, Peter jumps in, right? Peter from the beginning says, mm -hmm. you've got this story messed up. He said, we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me, and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. No, 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 Jesus, let me, let me explain to you how the story goes, okay? So Jesus says, get behind me, right? So, and so this is the same kind of a problem. These guys, James and John, this is part of that trio of the apostles, Peter, James, and John. They're all confronting Jesus and asking him questions and things along the way. The other guys are kind of staying in the back. And, and they're saying, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, can we sit on your left and on your right in, in your glory? They're expecting Jesus with his 12 apostles 
to go into Jerusalem within a day or two. They're going to arrive in Jerusalem, and they're going to dethrone Herod. He will take the throne of, of David, sit on the throne in the Davidic palace, and the kingdom of Solomon will be restored, basically the kingdom of David. And then all of the glory and imagery of the prophets will begin to be revealed. The Roman soldiers will flee from the place, and it'll be the kingdom of David established. So they're, they're thinking something like that. But Jesus says to them, can you sit? If you're going to sit on my left and right, can you drink of the cup? That I'm, and can you take the bath? So this language for them, again, furthers that idea because when the king would sit on his throne, he had the guests his, to sit on the king's right or on his left were seats of honor. And you would share, when you got a cup, a glass of wine, a cup, it wasn't a little, one of those wine glasses we had. They had a bowl. And so the king would be given his bowl of wine and he would, he would pass it to those on his left and on his right to, to drink from it. And then, and they say, oh yeah, we could do that. Yeah, of course we'll drink from your, your, your cup. And then, and can you take a, can you be bathed in the king's bath? Right? So the, the before a, a, a feast, there was a, you know, special bath and the king could bathe in that, like, you know, a nice big hot tub, basically be cleaned up. And they said, oh yeah, we, well, sure. We can go for that one. That's nice. And Jesus says, well, okay, well then you're going to have that, but you can't sit at my left and right. That's not for me to give. And so what Jesus is talking about, and we can see at the very last line, it says, verse 45, for the son of man also came not to be served, but to serve. What does that mean? To give his life as a ransom for all. And so these two men, James and John, will have their requests fulfilled. Just not the way they were thinking. Just as, as much as they didn't understand what was going to be happening in Jerusalem, these things are going to come about, and they're going to live this out. James will be the, be the first martyr among the apostles, recorded in Acts of the Apostles. John will be the last of the martyrs. They are bookends, bookends on the apostolic witness, martyrdom, about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that they themselves are going to live through. Okay, I'm going to push you a little further on this, this question about the cup and baptism, because while they may have had this vision of, you know, the being the next, you know, Jesus, the next emperor, and there is, you know, sitting along the whatever Tiber River or whatever river, the Jordan River, whatever their vision is, and they're in their palace patio and enjoying themselves. Jesus uses this image of, of the cup and of baptism to talk about, not that, but to talk about his upcoming passion. Why does Jesus use this image of the cup and baptism to talk about I mean, if we think of baptism, and I'm thinking about, you know, the little cute baby on Sunday morning and the white dress, everybody's taking pictures. Jesus has seen it completely differently here. I mean, he's certainly seen his cross. He's seen his death. He's seen the, his resurrection. So how... Yeah, so, yeah, so Jesus is using language here that that is has certainly at least a double meaning right there's this imagery that they're thinking about and he says you will share in my 
in, in what's coming, in the glory up to come. They don't understand that yet. None of the apostles understand what that means and how it's going to work out. And it's not like Jesus is tricking them. And okay, you've signed on the dotted line. These guys are going to willingly be martyred for the faith. They're going to willingly go out in public and preach. They're going to willingly live the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The, um, sometimes people ask, you know, when were the apostles baptized? Mm. Well, it's, it's in the story of the Gospels. This, this, this is their baptism. They were baptized. Baptism is living the life of Jesus, being one with Jesus. And these men walked through that life. They lived that life with him. And so they will be baptized. They will drink of the cup. And, of course, this has for us then that a double meaning, but it's not like they're, just, they're, they're unrelated. Certainly we think of the baptismal font. Full immersion, dunking, right? And the coming out in the ancient world, they would then layer you with oil, right? You'd be bathed in, in nice perfumed oil. And so the baptismal font were washed in and were buried, as St. Paul says, Romans 6, into the death with Christ, right? Where we enter the baptismal font with Christ and we are buried with him we die with him, we're buried with him, and we're raised with him in the newness of life. They, they will come forth, the catechumens, we, all of us who are going to participate this in it through the holy mysteries. We will come forth from that bath that Jesus went through, like the apostles also will share in. And we will be bathed in that holy chrism. And then we will share in that cup. That cup, which of course relates to or is that image for us sacramentally, of the Eucharistic cup. I'm glad you tied in Romans 6 here because that's the, that's what I was trying to, to maybe draw out of you a little bit there because I think we, we oftentimes have a misunderstanding of baptism or at least a weak understanding of baptism. And as we're making this journey of Lent with the catechumens now, it's important that we renew our understanding and appreciation for what takes place in baptism, this plunging into the into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we read in Romans chapter six, this beautiful quotation here from St. John Chrysostom. He says, when we immerse our heads in the water, the old humanity is buried as in a tomb below and wholly sunk forever. Then as we raise them again, the new humanity rises in its place. As it is easy for us to dip and lift our heads again, so it is easy for God to bury the old humanity and to lift up and display the new one. And this is done three times, that you may learn that the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit fulfills all of this. How beautiful it is that we hear this gospel passage on, on this Sunday as we continue our Lenten journey, preparing ourselves for Pascha, but also as we remember the life of St. Mary of Egypt, who lived that beautiful that, that beautiful gift of, uh, of giving her life to God, at this total self-gift. And I, I wanted to share uh, very quickly the uh, Treparian of Mary of Egypt, because I think it's so, it's so fitting to the gospel. In you, O Mother Mary, the faithful image of God shone forth, for you carried your cross and followed Christ, and you taught by your deeds how to spurn the body, for it passes away, and how to value the soul, for it is immortal. Wherefore, your soul is forever in happiness with the angels. Let's take a look here at the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 9. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. Chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. Brethren, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered once for all through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is, not as part of the present creation, nor again by virtue of blood of goats and calves, but by virtue of his own blood, into the sanctuary, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkled ashes of a heifer sanctify the unclean for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the Holy Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's certain, certainly a number of parallels here between the epistle and the gospel text. There's a lot here about blood, and for the modern man may be a bit confusing. So as I normally do, Father, take us back, oh, say, 2,000 years. Just, you know, just take us back real quick into that, that time frame and this epistle to the Hebrews. And what's all this business about sprinkled blood and sprinkled ashes of heifers and cleansing of the flesh and all this business? All right. So the, the blood, first of all, and this is important to talk about because there's so much confusion today in Protestantism. You'll sometimes, you know, see t-shirts, you know, by his blood and you'll have, you know, a hand, bloody hand with a nail in it and blood coming out. It's gruesome stuff. Um, what's happened there in, in theology often is it's taking beautiful metaphors that are here in the New Testament and turning them into theological constructs. So, we go back into the first century. I mean, here it says Jesus offered himself, right? He offered himself. And so then we'll say, well, he was the high priest, and we keep going with it, and we keep going. We'll go back and see what happened. The Jews killed Jesus. Right? They murdered him, as St. Stephen says. But he, he allowed them to do that. And so Christ's death, that is the, the giving of his blood, and all the New Testament, any serious commentary on the New Testament will point this out. That when we hear in the New Testament about the blood of Christ or being saved by his blood, that they're referring to his death. It's when he gave his blood, right? This is, you know, today people might die in other ways, but we're talking about a violent death here. They killed him. They murdered him. Blood poured out all over his body because of what they did to him. And so he, he died by shedding his blood. Right? You think of maybe a war, you know, a situation where someone gets, you know, killed by a sword or whatever. And so he gave his life that is his blood. The blood was, they saw the blood as the kind of like liquid life. When they slaughtered an animal in the ancient world, when enough blood came out, the animal fell over dead. When they, uh, when someone was, you know, injured in battle or whatever, enough blood came out, they were dead. So they, they saw that in some way there was this life in the blood. Now, you know, scientifically, they were onto something. There's the hemoglobin that has the oxygen in there, and you got to have the blood pressure for the brain and all that. So, but there was a kind of a connection there for them. And so they talk about Christ having given his blood, that is, having given his life. Okay. And he gave his life so that we might live, right? So you could say giving his life, another word you could say is he died. So he gave his blood, or he gave his life, or he died. These are all different ways to talk about the fact of what happened. He died through that death because, 
as St. Paul says, where sin is, grace abounds all the more. God has brought about a great salvation for us. And so now back in the Old Testament, we don't have time to get into all of the imagery here. This is imagery from the sacrificial system of Israel, where someone was in sin, and they offered a goat or a calf, depending on the type of sin. For us, that kind of sounds strange. I mean, in fact, there's probably people listening to this who have never actually even touched a goat with their hands or a calf. They may have seen one in the distance driving down the road, you know, off, off the, you know, on the freeway or something, but we're not in an agrarian culture anymore. But the, if you go back into the time of Leviticus, it was just simply an agrarian culture. They didn't have cities that they dwelt in at that time. They, had, they were a nomadic people, and their sustenance, for the most part, was their shepherding of goats and sheep and, and oxen and things like that. And so for a man who has, let's say, 100 sheep, uh, to, to, because for a particular sin, he offers a sheep or a calf, it would be very significant. Today, go buy a, a, uh, a yearling at, from a farmer for Pasca or something, you want to butcher it, it's going to cost you right around 200 bucks. Go buy a calf, and this isn't a cute little calf. They're talking about a, you know, a good-sized animal. It's going to cost you somewhere around $1,000. Okay, and so now, you know, if you put it into dollars, now you can kind of bring it up to our modern experience, you know. So, so offering, if you committed this particular sin, the priest says, well, for that sin, that's a, a lamb, a yearling, 200 bucks. What does he do with it? He throws it on the, in the fire and it burns up in smoke. Or you have to go give it away to the poor. Oh no, for this sin, this one's a calf. Thousand bucks? Yep. So you hand it to the priest, takes the thousand dollars, puts it on the fire and you watch it torch, right? So what you're doing is you're giving of yourself. You're giving of something. Now, you didn't have to. The priest tells you what it is that is required for this particular sin, depending on the gravity. And, and then the individual has to make a decision. Now, they've already in some way repented in the fact they've come to the priest and told them what they've done. So there's already some repentance in their heart, and then the priest tells them, okay, so that you don't do this again, right? There's a few things you're going to need to do. You're gonna, the, the sin in the end is, is greed, right? Self-love. All sin is. And so you're going to need to give of something that you, that you desire, that you feel is your security. In the end, is really the cause of all this. You have to learn how to give rather than take, which is really, again, what sin is all about. And so, so give, give, a, give me a, it's 200 bucks. Watch this. Torch. Poof. Right? Oh, no, that's, that's a thousand. Poof. So, the person just handing it over is already changing and watching it go up in smoke. They're a changed person. And now they walk away. And next time they're, they may be fall into that same situation. They now have the willpower and the mind to understand, to resist it. And so that's this basically what this is from, from then, but this is not what's going on with us. We're not giving $200 or a thousand dollars. Jesus has already died. Jesus died and risen from the dead. And so the New Testament authors show that if in Christ's death and his resurrection and our baptism into him, we come to, to life, that we are reconciled to God through this, then Christ's death and resurrection can be spoken metaphorically like 
the fulfillment of all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. If the sacrifices of the Old Testament were intended to kind of change a person in a little way, kind of keep them from that sin, and slowly bring them inch by inch back to, to God, but in the end never could complete the process. If in Christ then, through our baptism into him, we have died, been buried with him, and raised from the dead, now reconciled to God in Christ, he who is the Garden of Eden himself, the place where God men dwell together, then Christ's death and resurrection, the salvation through him, is the fulfillment of all of the sacrifices. And so this is why the New Testament authors speak of it in this way. You know, you, you mentioned fulfillment, and maybe we just draw it to a close here. Um, I think many people would, would uh, well, I know some, some do, uh, say, well, this is what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, and, and that's wonderful, what a gift Jesus gave, and that's over and done with. But of course, for St. Paul and for apostolic Christians, we believe that we are baptized into him um, and uh, I think it's so beautiful, you know, you're talking about this relearning of this, uh, this self-giving love, and, and, and no greater love has any man than to give his life for his friend. This is, this is what Jesus tells us, because, of course, God is love. And from all eternity, he has, shared, has lived a life of, of loving communion. And so we now are, are incorporated into that. The healing from selfishness um, is not simply the stopping of selfishness, it's the living of love, the living of self-gift. And G therefore, Jesus' sacrifice, his self-gift, it, it becomes an opportunity for us to be incorporated into him and to renew in ourselves this reality, which is why Jesus talks about baptism. And then he does this thing, as he often does, does where he, he repeats himself in a new way. He talks about the cup, he talks about baptism, then he explains those two things. He says, you know, um, those who are, who are regarded as rulers among the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not to be so with you. On the contrary. And now he says, this is how it's going to happen, right? Whoever wishes to become great shall be the ser a servant. And whoever wishes to be a first among, uh, among you shall be the slave of all. To be one who is totally giving of his life to the other. And it's this life that the catechumen is about to be incorporated into. And it's this life that our Lenten journey is to renew in each and every one of us. This life, this baptism into Christ's life, that we may regain the image and likeness of the one who is love from all eternity. The one who is, gives his life and pours out his life from all eternity. And in whose image and likeness we are made. As we journey then with the catechumens toward Pascha, this is the whole purpose of it. This is the whole purpose of it, that we might become once again the servants of all, the slaves of all. For the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And if we can learn that simple truth and be baptized and his life be renewed into us, then we have made the journey of Lent and we can truly say that Christ is risen and that we have risen from the dead in him. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. 
I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.